Hello and welcome to When It Mattered. I'm your host, Chitra Raghavan. I'm also the founder and CEO of Good Story Consulting, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. On this weekly podcast, we invite leaders from around the world to share one personal story that changed the course of their life and work and how they lead and deal with adversity. Through these stories, we take you behind the scenes to get an inside perspective of some of the most eventful moments of our time. On this episode, we will be talking to Aaron Warner, the founder and CEO of ProCircular. The Iowa-based cybersecurity firm helps companies confidently manage their cybersecurity risks. Aaron started ProCircular after a 22-year background as a CIO and CTO in the biotech world. Aaron, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Chitra. You have a really fun job. Basically, companies pay you to hack into their systems so that you can show them the holes in their security fabric, and then you help patch up those holes. It's a bit of a, an edgy counterculture type of job. How did you get into it? That's a good question, Chitra. I actually come from a, from a very academic family. There are a number of different people in our family that have PhDs in this, that, or the other thing. My grandfather actually was one of the people who was involved in created standardized testing at the University of Iowa. So the work that they did led to things like the SAT and the ACT. I actually went sort of a different direction. I spent a lot of time as a kid on my Commodore 64. I never really went the academic direction. In fact, the, the fact that I don't have my doctorate, my grandfather sort of went to his uh, grave disappointed about I uh, was always interested in, in computing, um, always interested in, in music, ended up in, in high school playing in a, in a metal band, actually. Found ourselves as the, as the sort of house band for a biker bar before bikers were all lawyers and, and hedge fund managers. It led to some really interesting situations. I, I learned a lot from some of those experiences. Tell us about what was your uh, band called, first of all, and, and what were some of the experiences you had and what convinced you to create a metal band of all things. Yeah. The naming of the band actually was one of the things that I've carried into business world. And that's that a really bad name, if you don't think it through, can follow you for the rest of your career. So our, our band was called Noise Ordinance. The group actually went a variety of different directions. My guitar player is now the president at a, a global biotech firm, drummer, as uh, a professor of optometry. Um, other guitar player works for a fairly large food organization on the East Coast, and our bass player went on to the Marines and then ended up working in the defense intelligence world. So it was a pretty non-traditional approach. Our, our band, so Noise Ordinance, we were this house band at a bar in a very small town in Riverside, Iowa, called the Iron Horse. The first night that we played, I was 16 years old. I don't know what my parents were thinking letting me go to this bar in the first place, but Somehow we talked them into it and um, we got together and thought, you know, what is the, what's our target audience? What, what's the group that we're, we're really trying to speak to? And did a little bit of homework and discovered that the bikers all sort of held out uh, Born to be Wild. That was a song that we were going to knock out of the park. And I will to this day never forget the last uh, uh, four chords of that song. When we finished, the, the crowd was silent. The bikers were very clearly angry with us, and some of them were sort of reaching to the bottle upside down so that they could throw these things at us. They were looking at us, trying to figure out whether they could physically throw us out of the bar, 
and then I looked over to the guitar player and said, you know, we're going to die. These, these people are going to get, we are in physical risk right now. Why, why were they angry with you? Well, as it turns out, um, that song, especially with bikers in the seventies, uh, is something of an anthem and for, and we didn't realize this at the time, but for a bunch of 16 year old kids to get up and play their song and try and take it on as their own, uh, none of us even own motorcycles. Uh, so, uh, it was, it was sort of treading on, on their territory and they made it abundantly clear that we had, we had crossed the line, but the, uh, I mean, I guess the lesson learned, uh, if you have failed in front of uh, a bunch of bikers like that, if you're if you're in physical risk for your life, um, any boardroom that you walk into, any meeting with a customer or meeting with a lawyer, none of those things look nearly as scary as they might otherwise. I mean, the chances that you're going to leave a conference room alive, the chances that somebody in a deposition is going to throw a bottle at you are actually very low. Uh, so relative to that, everything else looks pretty pretty straightforward. And honestly, that's been one of the lessons that I've kind of carried forward into the work that I do today. Well, when you first entered the workforce, did you actually think about that moment when you had to go into a difficult situation? Yeah. I mean, you sort of refer back to that at every at every turn and you think, you know, it could be bad. This could be, you know, you could fail at this, but it's probably not going to be that bad. And it's probably not like a life-threatening situation. So it's it's certainly um, something that comes up, you know, over and over again. And actually, the other members of the band bring that up quite a bit. You know, they have presentations to their board or they have investors that they have to work with or they have to defend, you know, a research paper that they've written. It's never quite as bad as failing at Born to be Wild in, in front of a bunch of bikers. How did you get out of there alive? What appeased them? Yeah, the bar was the uh, the Iron Horse Saloon in Riverside, Iowa. It no longer exists. Uh, I think, thankfully, uh, the place was condemned. We got out of there by uh, focusing on the next song and playing as well as we could. And by the end of the night, we had turned that crowd around and they asked us to come back and play. And uh, we actually played the last night that the bar was open. So, you know, it worked out pretty well for, for everyone in the long run. I'm assuming you didn't play the same song on that last night or did you? Uh, I don't believe that was on the set list. No, it was still it was still not our song. So, so that experience of sticking with something, you know, in a difficult situation, also probably had a lot uh, of, of inspiration for you down the line. Yeah, um, you know, when things it's it's easy to say, but in practice, it's much more difficult when things get difficult. Um, when things don't go the direction that that you thought they might or that you, you hope they would. That, I think, is what sort of separates the wheat from the chaff. And in, just in my experience, that's where you learn the most. You know, that's the place where those those big parts of who you are really are defined. You know, am I going to am I going to put my head down and work through this or am I going to throw up my hands? And I just have never been one to, to throw up my hands and, and walk away. And do you think the bikers didn't throw bottles at you because they saw you sticking it out? I think they respected what we were doing because it took about three seconds for us to get into the next song. And they thought, well, these kids have sort of stuck with it. Maybe we're going to give them a chance. And by the end of the night, we had a whole bunch of new friends, none of which my parents probably would have approved of. So how did you get from there into the cybersecurity world? Um, well, I... Um, 
uh, I had always done computer work. It was always something that uh, that I had that I put my time into. Um, I didn't know any better. I mean, I just thought that that's what other people did with their free time. And it was actually through the band I met uh, the bass player in another band. He was actually about to defend his dissertation at the University of Iowa in computer science. Iowa City is like that. Everybody's involved with the university in some way or another. He said, I've got to defend my dissertation. I've been putting this off. And I have this company, this little biotech company in, in Coralville, Iowa, just outside of town. And they need some software written. They need a, a network installed. And I know that you could do it. And I said, you know, I, I'll take a look. Uh, so I went out, met with this little biotech company, a guy by the name of Joe Walder. The company was called Integrated DNA. And uh, I did some work for them. They were happy with it. And, I, and they said, uh, Joe said to me, Aaron, we'd really like you to join the company. And at the time I was 20, I said, no, I have dropped out of school twice now uh, to take on uh, computer related projects. And I can't do that. My family is going to kill me if I don't at least get my master's degree. And Joe said, uh, well, we'll pay for that if, if you'd like. We'd really like you to join the company. So I hadn't really thought of that angle. And, um, you know, fast forward 22 years, um, I was the CIO of a global biotech firm. And cybersecurity was a really major part of what we did as an organization to protect intellectual property and that sort of thing. Truth be told, cybersecurity, and it really wasn't called that um, in the late 80s, but I had always been involved in sort of the hacking community and trying to test other systems. Friends and I used to email each other's administrative passwords back to one another back before you used a mouse to do that. Uh, and uh, it translated really well into the work that we did at, uh, at IDT. So what are the, some of the trends that you're seeing in the in the cybersecurity space now in terms of the threats that you're confronting for these companies and helping them manage their risk? You know, it's it's interesting. We started the firm in 2016, just before the, the election. So we've been involved in some election security work. We have uh, worked with a, a couple of different companies, a couple of different municipalities that are on the receiving end of some of the attacks that are coming from from overseas. So we've definitely seen an uptick. In fact, um, because we have been involved just by proxy, we've seen uh, an increase in the attacks on our organization from from overseas. And it's primarily from Russia or from organizations affiliated with the Russian government. Other trends that we see, uh, ransomware, and you know, you see these cities being locked up and held, held for ransom for X thousand dollars um, in, in Bitcoin. That has happened over and over and over again. I, I guess the other thing that we see, uh, probably taking a step back over the years, the biggest change, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, it really wasn't about financial fraud. You know, the internet didn't look then like it does today. The uh, people were who were in that world, who were in the hacking world, were mostly curious. We're just technical people who uh, it was a lot like solving a problem or um, putting together a puzzle to get into, into somebody's computer system. Very rarely would you run into somebody who would get in there and destroy things or hold somebody for ransom or, or steal money with it. It just, it just wasn't part of the scene. And over the years, I think that's probably one of the biggest changes is that it's become about financial fraud um, and, and theft. It's become so much easier to, to do that to other people. Because of the internet, uh, the threat 
you know, it used to be that only kids who had computers either in the library or in, in my case, in the back of the physics lab were able to even get on the internet. And now, you know, everyone in Nigeria has a phone that you can use to get on the internet. So just the sheer number and, and uh, of people who can get connected and who can, who can use those methods, those tools that have, that have evolved over time, uh, I think is, has driven that major change in, in, and how fraud and how, how the internet is used against people. And there aren't really a lot of easy answers, right, when it comes to, say, ransomware the, and how you, how you deal with things like that. Um, I actually was joking with a friend. Uh, I recently had a conversation with about 10 other uh, cybersecurity professionals, and I think there were about 11 different opinions um, on the subject. It is, it is really not cut and dry. You take the example of the city of Atlanta, I believe that the attack went down um, over the weekend. So that hacking group had been in Atlanta's computer system for quite a while, but uh, they got notification of the ransomware on a Saturday or a Sunday, and the mayor made the conscious effort not to pay the ransom. I believe at the time the ransom was something like $52,000. Then you get to Monday and CNN shows up and the FBI shows up and you know all of the rest of the press show up. And if that mayor had done his homework, he would have found that the group that was holding the ransom was actually pretty good about giving keys back. Uh, so I don't know that the term good thief applies there, but they were definitely not the shadiest of those of those groups. And the problem is that once CNN has shown up, uh, you couldn't give them $52 million. At that point, the hackers are just interested in getting out and not getting caught. So it's going to take them years to, to restore those data. Had they paid that $52,000, I think they would be light years ahead of where they are now. I think that it's a situational question. You know, what is the, what is overall, what is the relative risk? And that's sort of a theme in the, in the world of cybersecurity and in, in my life, you know, looking at the risk and looking at, all right, so what are the benefits? What's the likelihood uh, versus the impact? You know, what's the, the potential outcome? If you, Chitra, were to have your computer held by ransom, but you had good backups and you knew I can get most of this stuff back, maybe I lose a day. You can tell that hacker to go kick rocks, and it actually feels really great to do that. But it, at the same time, if they have every picture that you've taken of your family and you don't have it backed up, maybe paying that $300 or at least just taking the chance, maybe it's worth worth it to you. So I, I don't think it's as black and white as, you know, we don't negotiate with terrorists. I don't, I don't really don't see it in, in that light. Up until recently, the official FBI guidance was that uh, if it's under $100,000, you know, they they recommended that maybe you consider paying. I mean, it was sort of unofficial guidance that that you would hear. I think they've since changed their tune a bit, but yeah, it's a pretty it's a pretty simple interesting situation. It's a um, cybersecurity is a little bit like the the wild wild west in that respect. And when you educate your potential clients or clients about it, what are some of the the ways in which you do that? You probably have some really cool um, stories or uh, devices or pieces of technology that you sh use to show just how easy hacking can be. Yeah, we we um, you know all of us here are are pretty passionate about about this work. We like to collect the things that that cause problems. The a lot of the folks in the white hat world really 
love to, to solve puzzles, to solve problems. We actually have a team, I think, that's going down to DEF CON, the big hacker conference, to compete in the car hacking competition that they have. They're going to try and I think um, uh, one of the big uh, auto manufacturers has put a truck up. So some members of our team are going to go down and try and um, try and take down the, tr the truck and see if they can get it to lock up and start the car and hit the brakes and all kinds of the scary things that you you kind of hear online as, as you know as cars become more and more computer systems with wheels. Uh, so that's that's just one example of you know some of the things that we do here to stay current, to stay on top of you know what are the what are the real risks out there. And it, as the field is constantly evolving, you're probably, and it's a highly competitive field, and cyber engineers, cybersecurity engineers are, are, you know, a different generation and speak a different language probably than, than you do, even though you're very sophisticated and you've been doing this since you were a young kid. Uh, is there a generational divide? And if yes, how do you deal with it? I don't know if there is a generational divide. I think the methods, the, the priorities that people have maybe is is different, but the thing that we all share is a passion uh, for, for this for this world. I think the people here feel a, a really strong sense of wanting to protect people or wanting to help help others. All of us really love to solve problems, especially, I mean, the more complex, the better. Uh, John McAfee actually had an interesting quote. He said, you know, if the FBI would hire people with blue mohawks, they wouldn't have had to outsource the cracking of the iPhone. So you, you kind of keep an environment where people are free to be themselves, where people are free to, to keep it interesting. We have engineers show up here all the time with, with different you know, tools and devices. And you know, as, long as, as long as you're cool with an environment where people get to be themselves, I think you get a reputation for being a place that people want to work. And that really gives you access to the best and brightest in the industry. Um, if you if you try and nail them down and make them be that that person that fits into your corporate culture, make God forbid, try and make them wear a tie. Um, I think you'll find yourself really challenged placing cybersecurity engineers. The demand is is so high that those folks um, can can work pretty much wherever they want. What's one of the biggest uh, or most memorable cyber incidents you've dealt with, and and what were the lessons learned from that? I can give two examples. One was very early on, we had an accounting firm that had just two partners. So it's a very small organization. They had a hacker get in. We actually got the call from another cybersecurity firm who had already been in. And they said, we're a little bit over our heads. You should give these clients a ring. When we got there, the, the you can think of it as software on two different screens. So on the left screen, was the software that that small accounting firm was using to file taxes for their clients. They had between 500 and 600 clients, been in business for 20 plus years. On the right-hand side of the screen uh, was a list, and that list contained the names and social security numbers of quite a few people and sort of check marks on uh, the list of people for whom they had filed false tax returns. What was interesting about the list is that it contained not only people from that firm, but from uh, three other firms in three different states. So what we had interrupted uh, was essentially a workbench for a, for a hacker. And that hacker was slowly working through the list of people that he had pulled together and uh, was using that, firm, using that firm to file those false tax returns. 
we got the FBI involved. They were great. We have a really strong relationship with the Bureau and their, their team is fantastic to work with. Unfortunately, at the end of the day, that organization no longer exists. The, the cost of the breach and the damage to the trust with that organization, despite the fact that they had 20-year relationships with, with many, of their, many of their clients, most of their clients said, you know what, we think we're going to try and file our taxes with someone else this year. So it was, it was a, a pretty early lesson in you know, the damage that can be done when, um, when somebody gets in and, and hacks your system and really breaks that trust between a company and its, and its customers. And what was the other story? The other story, there was a large organization that we worked with that had individuals in their order entry group that would call back to IT, and it's, it's a usual phone call. They said, you know, are you guys doing anything back there? Because it's just slow. Things are just slow. And they said, no, we're not doing anything. So, well, are you backing up? No, we don't do backups during the day. Thanks, but please get back to work. And, you know, this went on for about six months, actually. And they would call, the front desk, the front office would call, and the IT folks would say, no, we're not doing anything. Can, can you do your work? Is your system working? They'd say, yeah, it's, it's working, but it's, it's slow. And so this went on for quite a while. Uh, eventually, it got to the point where the IT group looked more closely, and the, the system had been compromised, and the hackers were siphoning off something like 10% of the resources from this very large uh, server farm. Had they taken 80%, the IT department would have noticed immediately. But because they were only using a small percentage of the systems in, in that company, it just made everything a little bit slower and they were able to get away with it for almost a year. So we got in, we figured out who they were, kicked them out. The, the Actually, the hardest part of that breach was that we spent a lot of time trying to figure out who else had been invited to the party. Frequently, when a hacker takes uh, over a large computer system like that, they'll sell the keys to a number of different people. So they'll sell it to people who were mining Bitcoin, cryptocurrency. Uh, they'll also sell a set of keys to somebody who steals identities. They'll sell a set of keys to somebody who steals credit cards. So oftentimes, you won't have just one person in the organization. You may have four or five creeping around in there, you know, doing what what special area they know best rather than just, you know, the, the classic picture from 20 years ago where a hacker would get in and do all of those things uh, themselves. So that's a, that was probably one of the more technical breaches that we've, we've run into recently. That's pretty amazing and scary at the same time. Um, are, you, are you glad you're doing, that you took the path you did away from academia and that you're doing what you're doing today and kind of looking back on your trajectory from being that young metal singer to performer to where you are now? I, I love the work. If you're a person that enjoys dependable work environment and a static, predictable day and you want to know that if you put in a good day's work that in 25 years you'll be able to retire this is not the industry to work in for that matter neither is being a metal musician or working in biotech there's there's a, a, a sort of theme to all of those things and that if you're a person that's comfortable with the ground moving underneath you uh, if you're if you're most comfortable with a certain degree of unpredictability uh, if you enjoy, Trying to figure out, all right, so this happened, what am I going to do next? This, it's a great industry to work in. If you 
the things that you learn uh, today may not be at all useful next year, but you learn something new tomorrow and that buys you another day. Um, I think the same is true in, on, in all three of those disciplines. Are you still a musician? Do you still perform? I am actually, and I still play with uh, three of the five people that were that were in the band. So, you know, we don't play out. I have to be honest with you, the, the charge of uh, the excitement that you get when you're 16 and playing in a metal bar isn't easily replicated when you're 45. So I, I have to admit, I did replace replace some of that. I, I got into, into scuba diving on our honeymoon um, about, I guess, 16, 17 years ago and got into cave diving. So cave diving is really where, if, if I'm to take a vacation, that's really what I prefer to do. It sounds a little bit like bungee jumping maybe, but it's it's more about managing risk. If you're careful with your equipment, you're careful with your procedures, if you trained well and know you know, the technical things that you need to know, um, you can make it pretty safe. Um, but it is still, I mean, it's still pretty exciting stuff. So I guess it's all about managing risk. And that's kind of where you are, whether it's uh, avoiding getting killed in a biker bar or cybersecurity risks or cave diving. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what's your acceptable level of risk? You know, helping figuring that out for yourself. You know, how much risk am I willing to take? Am I willing to accept the potential downside? And, you know, is the upside worth it? I mean, that's that's the same in all of those things. It's a good point. Well, it's been great talking to you, Aaron. Do you have any closing thoughts? No, not at all. Um, other than um, I, I really appreciate the, the opportunity to, to, to chat. Um, and um, uh, yeah, thank, thank you for the time, Chitra. And where can people learn more about you? Our organization is called ProCircular, www.procircular.com. Uh, we do cybersecurity uh, and uh, and compliance work, and anybody, any organization that's that's looking to help get their arms around cybersecurity, um, our company will help you to manage your your cybersecurity risk, and we're pretty good at what we do. But thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Chitra. Aaron Warner is founder and CEO of the cybersecurity firm ProCircular, based in Iowa City, Iowa. Thank you for listening to When It Mattered. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please leave a review and rate it five stars. For more information, including complete transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io. You can also email us at podcast at goodstory.io for questions, comments, and suggestions for future guests. When It Mattered is produced by Jeremy Kaur, CEO and founder of Executive Podcasting Solutions. Come back next week for another episode of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.